Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 57, Leading a For-Profit Business as a Vehicle for Change, with Barry Nailbuff. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. If this is your first time joining our podcast, welcome. For our longtime listeners, you're probably wondering, what's up with that? theme music. That doesn't sound like Engaging Leader. Well, we are trying out brand new theme music, and we would love to know what you think of it. Our hope is that we uh, pick something that stays true to the personality of our show, but also is a little more of what people might expect if they are a first-time listener. Uh, I've got some feedback that our original theme music uh, is cool, but for someone who's looking for a leadership communication podcast, uh, when they first hear the music, it's just a little bit different from what they would expect. So we're trying out some new theme music. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, you can let us know. We've got a short survey online, and we would love to know your thoughts. If you go to engagingleader.com forward slash music, you can let us know what you think. Well, one of my favorite topics is how business can be a force for good in our world. Today, we're going to talk about the amazing story of a startup business in what some would call an oversaturated market, bottled iced tea. This company took on Snapple and other big players because they had a vision that would make a difference in people's lives. Then you fast forward 10 years later, they were bought by Coke, which is kind of every startup dream to get bought out and make a lot of money, I suppose. But they stayed involved and they kept working there. They didn't They didn't leave. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to keep pursuing that mission. And now three years after that, they're still living out their original mission despite being owned by a mega corporation. So in this episode, we're going to find out how Barry Nailbuff, Seth Goldman, and the team at Honest Tea have succeeded in leading a for-profit business as a vehicle for change. Our guest today is Barry Nailbuff, who is one of the two co-founders, along with Seth Goldman, of Honest Tea. Barry is professor at the Yale School of Management, and he and Seth together wrote Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. This business book has already hit the New York Times list of bestsellers. It's a book that every startup founder or entrepreneur wishes they could have read before they got started, and there's lessons for all of us in business and in leadership. Barry Nailbuff, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you for inviting me. Barry, you and Seth wrote a fascinating business book, and it's unusual in many ways, but most of all because it's done in this graphic style, which made it a very engaging read, but actually, I have to say, caused me to take a lot longer reading it because my four kids kept, quote, borrowing, unquote, the book away and reading it themselves. So I had to keep hunting that book down so that I could finish reading it myself. What caused you and Seth to choose this graphic format for your book? Just like the world didn't necessarily need another beverage, the, does the world need, not need another business book? And we thought that uh, we should try and do it in a way that is engaging. And the fact that your kids read it is really uh, as exciting and meaningful to us as anything. Because the reality is 
that it's hard to get the next generation engaged in what can be exciting about business. A lot of people think that going and starting a company, you become a rapacious capitalist and maybe you redeem yourself like Bill Gates by giving it all away at the end, as opposed to that the business itself can have a great impact, uh, that it can be a mission-driven enterprise. And so uh, something which can engage and energize the next generation is something that we thought uh, we'd do. Uh, you go to where the market is rather than expect the market to come to you. And the graphic format uh, is indeed a way to, to get to them. At the same point, we didn't dumb down the content. So it's sophisticated a book as you will find anywhere. I agree. I have to admit I was skeptical when I first heard about the book and picked it up. I thought, I don't really want to. I'm not into comic books. I really don't want to get into this. But from the very first page, it really did suck me in as both full of serious content, but but also done in, in an engaging style. And then I thought, maybe this is, when my kids first borrowed it from me, I thought, well, surely it's too serious for them. They're not really going to stick with it, but they but they have. So it's a, it's a great blend of that. We trick them into it. <laughs> That's right. Well, if someone picks up this book, it's, it's the book about creating a startup, uh, but it's also about a very much a mission-driven company with a certain vision behind it for affecting people's lives for the better. What, what can leaders learn from reading this book? Well, let's start with the notion of passion and mission, that your ability to motivate people to get through all the hard times and the setbacks is very much connected to having something that excites people. I mean, to me, the most uh, rewarding part was our employees who would say, when Friday came around, I'm kind of disappointed because it's two days till Monday. And it's hard to get people just that excited about making money as opposed to, in our case, well, if you sell more tea, we do more to improve the American diet. Uh, we get more antioxidants out there. Uh, we reduce sugar intake. And so the fact that there's something even uh, beyond the market share and profits is, I think, what ultimately really motivates people. Of course, you have to make money because if you don't do that, the rest of the mission disappears. But it's a combination of two things that I think is what attracts the right talent and keeps them coming. And it's interesting. It's almost a picture of the combination of you and Seth. So you had you as a professor at Yale, uh, which who ha- who understands and teaches all, all these big picture economic principles that helped you guys guide your decisions and avoid a lot of mistakes, although you still made many mistakes along the way, and you're very honest about those in the book. And then you have Seth Goldman, who has this passion for this mission. And Seth's background, he was your student at Yale, and then he went off and was trying to make a difference in the nonprofit and and more governmental sector. So you've got that sort of passion, and, and then you guys got together and said, well, we could maybe even do a, make a bigger dent in the world if we use business to, to pursue that mission. Exactly. So this notion that nonprofits can have a role to play, and of course they do, but the impact that a business can have is larger than pretty much anything. And if you can get a, a business doing things to improve people's lives, it, it's unbelievable. And one of my other hats, I serve as a director of Nationwide Mutual Insurance and being part of an insurance company where it's a mutual and the more insurance we sell, the more we help protect people. And uh, again, you can feel great about that. 
And so when you have products that are really improving people's lives, uh, the ability of business to have a big impact and leverage. You talk in the in the book, it, it, it's, it's really a story, but there's some themes that come up over and over again. And I'd like to kind of delve into those, especially brand, reputational capital, and people. And when I picked up the book, I was not expecting it to be so much a book about brand, but you guys seem to recognize from the very beginning that the brand was important. And that's more than just creating a snappy label. The brand actually has to, to stand for something. What, what did honesty originally stand for, and, and has that developed over time? Yeah, um, I think we always understood that this would be about a healthy, less sweet drink. But when we started off, we thought the most important word in our name was tea. And that led us to do things like make tea bags, which ultimately weren't very successful. <laughs> and over time, we came to realize that the real differentiator and what really mattered the most was the word honest. And that that ultimately guided everything we did, everything from uh, deciding that meant we had to be organic, we had to be fair trade, that we had to put the number of calories per bottle, not just calories per serving, that um, we wanted to have open and honest relationships with our suppliers. It's why we put our business plan online, sort of open source, so that other people can follow what we're doing. And that led us to ultimately think about what other products could be made more honest. And we saw kids' drinks. Uh, the Capri Sun product, I think, had 110 calories for 6.75 ounces. Uh, that's sweeter than most sodas. And we realized that there was no reason to put that in kids' lunch boxes. So we cut the calories to 40, got rid of the high fructose corn syrup, made it organic, and it's suddenly now, I think, over a third of uh, the business. And so thinking about what products uh, could be made in the way that uh, you'd want them to be made I think it was either H.L. Mencken or P.T. Barnum who said, uh, nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American <laughs> public. But the inverse of that is, can you make money by respecting your customer's intelligence? I think that, that hasn't been tested often enough. And we're particularly proud that we show that you can actually be successful uh, while respecting customer's intelligence. And that's part of, I think, the uh, honest brand. It's interesting. The respecting their intelligence, there's this great section in the book where you talk about your decision to put a graph on the back of one of your bottles of tea that showed the, I think it was the, the amount of sugar versus taste. And you, you basically, in the book, you use that to teach us a lesson of, of um, marginal return, I think, right? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What specifically about that really required respecting your customer's intelligence? Well, let's just start with the fact that he... Uh, we're we're hoping that they're going to be label readers, that they actually care about what's going, why we're doing this product, what makes it different and special. Uh, and so it's one thing that it tastes great, but it's another that they understand why it's great for you or what led us to these decisions. And uh, we want to explain that, uh, look, this product may not actually be the best tasting product in the market. On the other hand, uh, for the number of calories you get, you can't possibly beat it. So for 30 calories, uh, it's um, amazing. And what this graph explains is that uh, if you go from 30 to 60 calories or 30 to 70 calories, uh, you won't get a whole lot more. You won't double the flavor or the taste, uh, but you'll double the calories. 
And so the ideal drink is not necessarily the one that tastes the best. It's really the one that has the best combination of taste and calories. And of course, by using fewer sweeteners, a sweetener, um, we can use agave and honey and maple syrup, much more expensive sweeteners. Uh, so that explanation is something that I think uh, people who will read the label will ultimately appreciate and uh, come back for more. You say that when you're creating a brand, you need to have a, a product or service that is radically different or better than others. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. And so you, you guys created a, a tea that was real tea brewed on, in, in your plant as opposed to the way that other tea manufacturers made it. And it actually tasted like tea. It wasn't overpowered by sugar and other flavors. So people that actually like tea a lot... Uh, can actually taste what the tea's like with just a, a touch of enough sugar to kind of take away the bitterness. But then you say that the brand not only has to be radically different or better, but be able to succeed even after competitors try to copy it. And so you've certainly been copied with competitors such as uh, a Starbucks brand Tazo. How, how do you still manage to have your brand stand out in the face of that kind of more direct competition? Well, I, I think the answer is we still have a different taste profile than Taza. We're less sweet than they are. And uh, I think people understand what we stand for. Economics says that just being 1% better, you'll catch the whole market. But the world doesn't work that way. You really have to be so much different and better that people uh, will give you a second chance because your cost structure isn't going to be better, your production isn't going to be better, your quality isn't going to be better. There has to be something that's so much better. When you're discussing in the book what were the keys to success, and especially you're going to have some mistakes and what's going to prevent a mistake from killing you, one of the things you talk about is capital, and of course that means money, which was, I think, your role in, in, the, in the growth in the early stages of the company was, was uh, seeking investors, but it's also about reputational capital. What, what do you mean by reputational capital? Well, uh, you're going to make mistakes. And in our case, things will go wrong. We had glass and ended up in bottles by mistake. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Uh, we had uh, fermented tea that became accidentally alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> I guess one person did get drunk. Uh, Lindsay Lohan somewhat famously on this. Uh, <laughs> and the question is, how do you respond when that happens? And in our case, uh, we not only took uh, all the bottles back uh, from the shelves before any recall uh, would have to happen, but we took bottles that were uh, from months before the issue because if we couldn't really understand what it was that got the glass in there at that time, then how do we know earlier bottles didn't have a problem? And mm-hmm. so by doing the right thing with our, uh, with our retailers, uh, they came to appreciate that they didn't have to force us to make these actions. At the same time, it's kind of scary because you lose all your shelf space. You take all your product off the shelf, and the question is, uh, can you get it back? And mm-hmm. unless uh, firms really trust you and want to uh, give you a second chance, that'll kill you. And you don't get that type of reputation from day zero. You have to earn it. And that's everything from when you say you're going to do a sampling, do you show up at the store? When you say that you're going to make a delivery, does that delivery happen? When you say this is what the is going to be, can you stick to it? And so we had done and followed through enough early on that uh, when we did mess up, people were willing to give us a second and even sometimes a third chance. 
So invest in your reputation because if you've done that, it can buy you a second chance. Yeah, and just like uh, you have money that you can draw from the bank, you also have, uh, if you like the reputation, you can draw from other people uh, when you need it. Hopefully you won't need it, but most likely you will. And so the question is, is it going to be there for you? Uh, and you can't really ask for the favor until you've given the favor. Oh, that's, that's, that's very insightful. Well, let's talk about people, because you talk about some amazing stories in the book of dedication from your team that is quite surprising. How, how have you managed to inspire that kind of dedication? Uh, well, I think that we found people who really cared about what it is that we were up to. Uh, and I like to think that we treated people the right way. We had uh, one employee in our team who ended up having cancer. And uh, when she was going through chemotherapy, she was unable to uh, work with other people around her because her immune system was compromised. And Mm -hmm. so we found a way for her to work at home, and uh, everything was faxed her, and she would fax things back. And so uh, she was able to continue doing her job in spite of the fact that she was really uh, in a very difficult position. And I think she's now been with the company 15 years. Uh, she's gotten better. And, uh, and so you do what you can to uh, allow people to have lives. Uh, we find ways for people to go to soccer games or uh, when have attorney leave to work at home so that uh, it's really very much a part of a family. And uh, people also care about what it is that they're selling. They can get excited about because you can be the world's greatest business, but if in the end uh, you're selling something that uh, makes money nobody really cares about, uh, I think that that's going to be hard to get people the same type of passionate people. How did that happen? Where that? How how did you get them so excited about the product? Did, were they all just tea lovers from the beginning? None of us, I think, are tea lovers when it comes <laughs> right down to it. I'm not a tea lover. I like tea. But it wasn't about tea. It's really about providing people with a healthy, delicious choice. Mm-hmm. And that's something I can get excited about, right? I mean, America's uh, biggest health problem is going to be obesity. Right. And if you can be part of that solution and you can do it while making money, I mean, how do you beat that? Mm-hmm. We initially, let, let's go back to the kids' product. After we launched our Honest Kids with 40 calories, Capri Sun lowered their calorie, I think, to something like 80. And... Uh, and whatever impact we had with ours, think about how many calories ended up getting taken out of the American diet with theirs going down from 110 to 80. And so you see impacts all around you in terms of things you're doing, and that gets you excited. Right. You're making a difference not just in the lives of the people who buy your drink, but by affecting the market, you've actually changed the overall American diet. Absolutely. And God knows we need to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. As you... You and, and Seth were starting your your explorations in tea. In my own life, I was being frustrated with, of course, the sodas that are on the market and and the flavored drinks, and was often wishing for something that was what we would now call like the sports water or the just the flavored water with just a just a hint of water. And so that there was that it's it's a big me- it's basically I guess been a mega trend that you guys noticed that look it's not just about do you have calories or no calories because when when we go to to a diet drink then you're replacing it with all sorts of chemicals and it's still really sweet you're not you're not really hydrating yourself so you've you've landed on one of the aspects of the, the solution to that hole in the market 
Yeah, and look, what you've just described is really the marginality story we talked about a moment earlier, which is the first unit of sugar takes away the bitterness, the next adds a little bit of sweetness, and you need to go from there. So you start with water, and you can add vitamins, you can add tea, uh, you add a little bit of orange juice. So water with some flavor and some health benefits. Sounds to me like a great idea. Now, Honest Tea, you've... You were a startup for the for the first ten years, and it really was a struggle. The, the from what I can gather from the book, I mean, just amazing for 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 ten years. It was a constant fight just to stay alive and and to and to get money uh, to to fund it. And I'm just curious as to how you kept people inspired and motivated during all that time because it's not like you were a dot-com startup i think where you were sort of holding out this dream that hey stick with us if we make it you're got you're probably you're all going to be multi-millionaires uh, i think that's true well i think the employees who stuck with us have done pretty well so i think that's uh, several of them are living their dreams one has started a beer company and one spends more time coaching his kids basketball games and that's all been for the good um but I think larger is really the leadership from Seth. I mean, uh, Seth inspires everyone every day, and uh, he is a glass uh, three-quarters full kind of guy. <laughs> and uh, his view is people never say no. They just haven't said yes yet. And uh, he always believes in the best of people and brings out the best of people as a result. So people, I mean, I think for me it's a uh, role model. Uh, for me, for my kids, I think if you say, what would Seth do in a situation? Uh, you'll end up coming up with a pretty good answer. What are some of the main components there that make that leadership personality so powerful? You mentioned the sort of optimism and and energy. Uh, Optimism, uh, believing in the best of folks, so not being a cynic. It's easy for an academic to look for irony, look for contradictions, and Seth is just uh, always thinking that everyone else is out there doing the right thing. And even when necessarily they're not, sometimes uh, Seth's positive perspective uh, helps push them in the right direction. I get the impression from the book that you and Seth were 50-50 partners all along, and even though you have quite different personalities. In fact, you kept your day job at Yale while Seth has been the full-time TEO since 98. How did that partnership, how were you able to make that partnership work so well? Well, for me, uh, my job was simple. Is If Seth was successful, then I'd be successful. And so uh, I could do some of the things that might be harder for him to do. In particular, sometimes somebody has to be the bad guy. And that's a role that comes to me somewhat naturally, I guess. <laughs> I think there were times when Seth would be having a call with a supplier and it wasn't going so well, and he'd say, well, do you really want me to call up Barry and get him on the phone with you? <laughs> say, no, 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 we, we, we can work this out. <laughs> Um, I think another challenge that many CEOs have, well, there's many challenges. I mean, one is they don't always have someone that, who they can talk to in, in confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a lonely job. And so I could be that person at night. He would call and go over things and work out various decisions and different scenarios. Uh, another challenge for CEOs is that they can often get distracted, uh, whether it be with raising funds, talking with investors, uh, dealing with lawyers and negotiations. And I was sufficiently familiar with the business uh, and integral enough to it that I could take on a lot of those roles and thereby free Seth to do what he really loved to do and, could, and was essential to doing. And so if you can have a partnership that works that way, uh, it can really allow a CEO to flourish. 
In some of your ongoing development of the mission, so you were one of the first beverages to be fully organic and fair trade. Is it enough just to explain that to your employees or have you had to take them to the growers and meet some of those people to kind of spread the enthusiasm for that part of your mission? Well, I'd say it's not close to being enough to doing that. I mean, we tried that and failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a product called uh, Harlem Honeybush Tea, mm-hmm. and it uh, was unbelievable. It was helping farmers in George, South Africa, who had previously been wildcrafting, and we helped them figure out how to cultivate a crop, and it was organic, and uh, we were buying it directly from them, and they were getting much higher prices. You know what has to come first is the taste, and if the taste isn't great, nothing else really matters because then nobody buys it, and you don't get a whole lot of tea, and mm-hmm. you don't help the farmers in any particular way. And so ultimately, we came up with a new flavor, pomegranate red tea. It doesn't say the name Harlem in it or, or Honeybush, but we're buying a whole lot more red tea now from those same farmers, uh, and the tea tastes better. And so, uh, yes, we need to. We want to be organic, and we want to be fair trade, and we want people to appreciate that we're doing that. But that's number two on the list. Number one is tastes great. And did you have to... As far as your employees who've done some amazing things from their commitment and, and high level of engagement, did you have to like physically take them to meet growers? Or how, how do you sort of transfer that, the passion for what difference it makes in, in the lives of the people who grow the product? Seth and I have been to some of the tea gardens. I've been to tea gardens in China and in South Africa. He's been to tea gardens in China and in India. And... Uh, it's one thing just to say that, oh, it's organic. It's another to really see the practices that they're engaging in, understand uh, how they're having a variety of different crops so they're not doing monoculture, uh, to see the difference between what their tea gardens look like and the neighboring ones, which are using more pesticides. And so you can see all the wildlife that exists on this garden to figure out what those communities need. So we have invested in building a computer center for the tea growers' kids to become computer literate and have access to the outside world in ways that they previously didn't. And so uh, it's not just an anonymous relationship where you are buying uh, products from them and saying, okay, what's the best price I can get? But having a relationship and learning about the ingredients and learning about how it's done, and we share that knowledge with our customers, with our employees, and it gets everybody excited because our employees are totally buy into the difference we're making. Hmm. Like we've gone from buying 500,000 pounds to 5 million pounds of organic ingredients a year. Wow. And so that's a, a much bigger impact. Is Honest Tea still living up to its mission despite now being owned by Coca-Cola? Uh, I think it is. I think it's doing it in two ways. One, uh, by having a bigger impact in terms of how many ingredients it's buying, uh, in terms of how much we're selling. That if you can sell a billion bottles rather than 100 million bottles, well, we do 10 times the impact uh, for the American diet. Uh, so that, I'd say that since we started, the products have gone from partially fair trade to now all fair trade. And so, again, it's uh, managed to do more in that regard. And then uh, Coca-Cola has helped our costs down. So the bottles have gone from being 19 cents each to 11 cents each, Hmm. and that allows us to keep our prices. Mm -hmm. And so there's no point having this great product that nobody can afford. And so if Coca-Cola can help us get access to lower costs and get people access to the product, 
well, we get to do have a much bigger impact, all for the good. And you've managed to stay true to your mission and to the honest, rather than being swallowed up like you would see in a typical acquisition by a much larger company. And in the book, you share some of the, of course, the story behind that, but also what are some of the principles that you, you, you talk about as far as when you get to the point that where you're, you're courting a partner like that? Well, look, I mean, it's an unusual acquisition that Seth is still leading the company in Bethesda. Yeah. Seth is still in the same house, still the same wife. I'm in the same house, same <laughs> wife. I'm back at my day job at Yale. And so this notion that uh, we're both doing things that we love doing. And that when we now have the resource to do anything we want, we continue doing what it is that has our passion, I think speaks volumes about having the mission right to begin with. Yeah, so in your, you end the book with, with 10 rules for the road, and the very first one is build something you believe in. And then you also talk about do what you love to do so that you don't end up wanting to give it up later. If, it, if it's what you love to do, you'll keep doing it. And, and so I guess a test of saying that is imagine you won the lottery. And now you can do anything. If you if you're if the first thing you do is turn in your resignation, then I suggest you're not probably in the job you really should be in, and you should be thinking about uh, finding something that excites you more. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Barry. Do you have any cautions for entrepreneurs who are thinking about similarly launching a, a mission-driven company? Yeah, um, I think I want you, people to distinguish between what is a good idea and what is a good business. So for many years before we thought about honesty, we were stuck on mixing orange juice and club soda. And while I think that's a great tasting product, ultimately that would have been test marketing for Minute Maid and Tropicana. They could have come in, they would have crushed us, we'd have shown it'd be a great idea, but we would never have built a brand around that. Uh, I'd have been bitter, and you wouldn't have invited me to be on your radio show. <laughs> and you might not have the same wife. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think the challenge is you have to say, not just why will it work out front, which is already a big question because no one's going to open up market space for you. But after it's worked, what you've done is not a secret. In fact, you're going to try and tell the whole world about it. And so why is it, even after the world knows about what you've done, that you're still going to be able to succeed when folks copy you? And that's a really hard question because most good ideas are a good idea for someone else. Take uh, colored salt. I'd like to be able to see how much salt I put on my food. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a good idea, maybe it isn't, but if it is a good idea, you can't patent it. And so Morton would see what you're doing, copy it, and uh, take you over. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that second question uh, is a really, really hard one, and I'm not sure everyone focuses on it uh, quite enough. They're, they're more focused on why it's going to succeed in the first place. So think about why, if you've got an idea, think about why it would succeed, but then what, how is it going to succeed when other people notice you and start to copy you, especially your bigger right. Well, why won't they copy you? Yeah. Uh, and the notion that somehow I'm going to be a first mover and I'm going to be faster than others, uh, that might be true in a software case. Uh, so it might be true in a Facebook uh, example, but uh, in outside of uh, internet businesses, it doesn't happen that fast. So... The big firms with a lot more resources uh, will have the ability to uh, overpower you and overtake you uh, if they so choose. So why will they choose to do things with you rather than uh, against you? Barry, I have one question that came in from our community. Um, Joseph asks, now it seems like you're being copied by other tea brands. How are you able to keep growing? We touched on that a little bit earlier, but 
this this idea of growing despite uh, being being copied by other m- big brands. Why aren't they in your the same space that you're in? You, you said you you're still kind of different. Well, now now they are. Uh, so Nestle has bought a company called Sweetleaf and uh, Tradewinds, and Snapple has some less sweet versions, and that's why it's critical that we have the distribution arm of Coca-Cola and the ability to lower our cost of bottles uh, by eight cents so that we can be cost competitive and we can be everywhere there. So uh, the issue in terms of being copied is when you're young and you don't have any resources. But at some point, obviously, you're going to get copied. We are being copied now. And uh, look, with Coca-Cola on our side, it's, uh, I like to think it's at least a fair fight. And so when you have the right partners, uh, I think you'll still survive, provided you have a great idea and you execute it the right way. Yeah, and in, in the book, it was not the easiest decision to join with Coke. Part of it, there was, of course, uh, there was a good deal and a lot of opportunity there, but there was also the risk that by that point in your growth, if you didn't align with somebody like Coke, then the other, the big tea companies really were going to start impeding on your space. Coke said to us, and it wasn't a threat, it was just a reality, that uh, they thought a tea company was the biggest hole in their portfolio <laughs> and that they were going to buy a tea business. And Nestle said the same thing. And so then the question is, did we want to be competing against Coke and Nestle uh, or competing with them? Uh, and uh, it might be something to take on one of them, but to take on both of them at the same time seemed a little bit uh, daunting. And then the opportunity to grow the business with their help uh, was uh, what any entrepreneur would dream of. And of course, if we can help uh, shift Coca-Cola 1% towards providing healthier, organic, fair trade products, uh, wow, that, that's another huge impact that you can have. Fantastic. Well, the book is Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. Our guest has been co-author Barry Nailbuff from Honest Tea. Barry, where can people find out more about the book, about you, and about your work? We have a website called missioninabottle.net, and there's a little one-minute animation which shows you some of the graphic format of the book there. And then links on that website to uh, indie bookstores, to Amazon, to Barnes & Noble, so that you can find the bookstore book wherever you want. Uh, the hardcover is in two-color. The electronic version is in uh, four-color, uh, so you can go either way there. Uh, I like to think that this uh, book, uh, you know, if, if we had had this when we started out, it would have saved us millions. Uh, you can come to the management school at Yale and pay a couple hundred thousand and learn from me directly or for 20 bucks. Get all the uh, lessons there because it's not uh, just what we did on his tea. It's really, I like to think, an open source book for entrepreneurs. And we hope you'll be able to enjoy some of the success we've had. Uh, that would be the best outcome of all. Fantastic. Barry Nailbuff, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you for having me. Well, again, the book is Mission in a Bottle. I would say it's definitely an indispensable guide for anyone who wants to create and launch a successful business, but also if you have a dream for business as a vehicle for change. It definitely has specific insight into how to lead a mission-driven company in a world that's more profit-driven. In our show notes for this episode, we'll put the information and links that Barry provided. We'll also include that one-minute video that he mentioned, which I, you're going to like. It's, it's gonna sh- it shows off the graphics from the book, and it's a, it's a fun video to watch. Now, if you have questions or comments about this episode, 
or a past episode or any topic related to leadership communication and and engagement, we would love to include you on the conversation. You can leave an audio message by calling 989-787-0060, or you can go to engagingleader.com and click on the record voicemail button. And of course, you can submit questions or comments to me at jesse at engagingleader.com by email or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy or on Facebook or LinkedIn. Well, that wraps up this episode. You can find the show notes and all the links we talked about at engagingleader.com forward slash 57 as in episode 57. And don't forget to let us know what you think about that theme music. Go to engagingleader.com forward slash music. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.